the biggest problem you have as a doc is you know too much stuff, and so you immediately jump to the answer. It's the uh, fox is watching the chicken coop in, in a certain sense, because oftentimes these kinds of things go before a broader panel of physicians. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, the July issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. I've got Greg on the Skype line in uh, Ann Arbor, and uh, we have a special guest this month. Uh, Ken Tots uh, is on the line. I have been seeing his writings popping up in profusion. Um, In fact, I'm showing one right now. It's called Peer-Reviewed Paranoia that was published in... um, uh, ASAP now, uh, back in November, November of last year, and uh, I saw more and more writing, and Ken started doing some uh, writing to us, and I thought, just this guy knows a lot of stuff, and so yeah. But before we start here, Rick, I'd like to say hi to Kenny and say, Kenny, uh, why why don't you do something with your life? You're a doctor. <laughs> you're a lawyer. You're a helicopter pilot. You were a fixed-wing pilot. You know, we have a a 12-step program for overachievers here. Uh, The problem is you'd probably send me a letter saying it's 25 steps, and you'd start on it immediately. Uh, You know, I look at your curriculum vitae, and I got to think, Greg, what did you do with your life, you idiot? And and, uh, you're really an accomplished guy. Rick and I are happy to have you here on the program, and who knows, uh, if if you're really good, we'll have you back again, and if you're great, <laughs> then I'm going to have them take them out and shoot you, because then, then you'll take my job, and I don't want that to happen. But, Kenny, it's good to have you here, and uh, we, we've got a lot of, we got a lot of uh, ad- admiration for all the things you've done, and thank you for your service. Oh, thank you very much. Very kind of you all to extend the invitation. Tell us well, a little bit about yourself. Uh, that, um, uh, Greg just uh, touched on some of it, but I think you've had a fairly uh, remarkable career, and um, particularly the fact that you are only recently uh, graduated law school and, and completed, <laughs> the, of all of all things, the California bar, which we'll talk about in a second, about how easy it is to pass. <laughs> well, uh, you realize, Rick, I've never successfully passed a bar in California. <laughs> but then again, uh, I haven't passed them very many places. So it's OK. We can go on. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you. So um, so I ha- had some humble beginnings. My uh, my dad, uh, dad grew up uh, in uh, Gonzales, Texas, a small Texas, uh, in uh, a small town in Texas. He was a, uh, a chicken rancher, and at some point along the way, the chicken ranching business went went belly up, and uh, he was a, a very good athlete and got a, a scholarship to run track at the University of Texas at Austin, then stayed on there and went to law school uh, there. So after that, he went out to Washington, D.C. and uh, got his master's in tax law, was working for the IRS at the time, and met my mom on a blind date. 
And so they elected to move back out here to Texas. And uh, so I grew up here in Houston, Texas, where we live now. You, you was, realize, of course, Kenny, that 90 percent of people who work for big firms going after the government started out working for the IRS because that's how they learn all the tricks. And then I just had a friend who got taken. He's in the oil industry and the and oil taxes. And he got a job with one of the major oil companies. It was just like being with the feds, except they, you tack one zero on what they paid him. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I, uh, I always wanted to race cars when I was little, uh, believe it or not. I was really a, uh, a motorhead. I loved uh, racing cars, taking engines apart and doing those kind of things. But I, I realized towards the end of uh, high school that making a living as a motorhead uh, really doesn't pay so well. You know, I had an influential uh, high school professor who was a non-practicing uh, physician, and she saw some potential in me. Uh, I'm not sure really where, but she encouraged me to consider pre-med. And so I went to St. Edwards University in Austin, graduated with a biology degree, pre-med, and then earned a scholarship to the uh, Navy through their health profession scholarship program to go to medical school. I went to the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine in Chicago, and I uh, thought I might want to be a, you know, a doctor motorhead, uh, an orthopedist. And, but, uh, you know, I, uh, Went to my first week of class in med school, and, and we had this introduction to clinical medicine course, and it was all offered by these uh, emergency medicine docs, and they were telling us about what they did. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I think I can do that. that uh, I really see myself doing that. So uh, after uh, med school, went on to active duty, did a rotating transitional internship at the Naval Hospital Portsmouth, Portsmouth, Virginia. Then after that, went down to the Naval Operations Medical Institute in Pensacola, Florida, and earned my uh, flight surgery wings. And down there, we learned a lot about the aeromedical environment. We learned how to fly airplanes, fly helicopters, and it was uh, a, a lot of fun. And then after that, went uh, to my first duty station in New Orleans as a flight surgeon and was there for about three and a half years preparing, preparing our troops for Operation Southern Watch in Iraq and flying a ton with the Coast Guard. I really enjoyed their mission. They really have a, a nice definable mission that you can put your finger on and you know what you're doing every single day. I spent my time off uh, reading through Tinton Alleys a few times, moonlighting in some small towns in uh, Mississippi. And uh, then 9-11 uh, hit uh, right as I was essentially pressing the button to send my residency application away. Uh, President Bush uh, put the stop loss on all of us uh, that no one could get off active duty. Uh, but fortunately, our skirmish in uh, Afghanistan didn't last too long. And uh, they lifted that stop loss and uh, off to uh, EM residency. I went at the University of Texas at Houston. Where I graduated as the chief resident in 2005. And since then, <clears throat> have uh, accumulated over 50,000 uh, practice hours, a lot of hours, more than 150,000 patient contacts uh, since, since that time. So I've seen a lot of folks, seen a lot of things. I invented this uh, uh, medical device and got two patents on it, which I called the Intubix, and got two patents through the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And it was a, a, a device that 
helps uh, facilitate the passage of an orogastric tube. And practiced uh, still some more for a number of years. And in 2014, uh, looking for a, a little um, something different in my life. And so thought I ought to go to law school, wanted to perhaps be in uh, the you know, run for office uh, one day. That was my uh, initial motivation for uh, going to law school. And it's since uh, changed a little bit, but uh, it may still be out there. Graduated with honors last year and then uh, passed the uh, California bar in February of this year and celebrated my biggest accomplishment last month, uh, my uh, 25th wedding anniversary. Wife has been through all of this business uh, with me and just a wonderful, supportive woman. Uh, we have two great children, Samuel, who's uh, 21. He's a senior at TCU this year. Caroline is 18, and she's a freshman at SMU this year. And so we're going to officially be empty nesters as of next month. So done uh, uh, worked in small towns, big towns, private practice, um, academic uh, and telemedicine, and primarily doing freestanding emergency departments now, which allows me some time to uh, consult on a host of medical legal issues and give back to my profession and and hopefully continue to be able to afford the wine of the month. Well, you know, uh, Kenny, and we, we have your permission to call you Kenny, even though this Absolutely. is the first time we're doing this. Um, yes. We had talked offline about what it's like to pass the California bar. Of all places to pass, to go for the bar exam, uh, you probably mm -hmm. picked the, the most, among the hardest places, the the pass rate you told me was um, thirty-one percent uh, oh when my I took God thirty-one percent the pass rate, uh, and so I feel uh, very very fortunate. Uh, I'm still questioning whether they had the uh, uh, the right score connected with the right person, but I'll, but I'll take it nevertheless. Rick, what? I already again. I already hate this guy, and uh, so uh, we, we're going to have to find Guido to bump him off or something because it sounds like he could have our jobs tomorrow. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> you're you're uh, sort of running the show today. We'll jump okay. in on any topics you want and uh, feel comfortable with it. I know that you had a couple that you were think are really tough medical negligence, liability, things like that. So start out. Although, tell, tell Rick and I where we've been wrong sure. for the last 13 if years. If I could, given the fact that we have a new lawyer entering the practice, uh, I have to acknowledge that my wife of 49 years uh, just retired two weeks ago after 40 years at the same firm. And uh, I have to give her a real shout out. She did a terrific job and I'm very proud of her. And um, so it's only fair that somebody replace her now, one for one. We, we'd like to keep that ratio down here in California, but it seems that you're coming in and she'll still be a lawyer, but she's not practicing anymore. So um, let's move on. But a little shout out to my, my Diane for doing a terrific job for 40 years. We, the rest we of us refer to her as Saint Diane for putting up with Rick and his <laughs> crap. But, uh, no, she's a great gal, and uh, we've all of us have called her to uh, wish her the best in her retirement. 
You know, I've uh, I've been very fortunate to to work with a, a lot of wonderful docs uh, over the years, a lot of great NPs and PAs and nurses, and everybody's working real real hard out there, and uh, it's a wonderful wonderful community because I practiced in many states, and we have a wonderful community that uh, that we belong to. Now you know what? Whenever I when I ever I come onto a shift, I uh, I really look back to my uh, my days when when I flew, and I analogize each of my shifts uh, like it's uh, like it's a flight. So uh, I may be the the pilot, but everybody's on board the plane, and we got to get this plane to the end of the shift safely. And if the plane wrecks, we all die. So everybody everybody needs to be looking out for each other. There is not an inconsequential person uh, on the shift. The nurses need to look out for you. You need to look out for the nurses, PAs, NPs. We all need to look out for each other. So we call this uh, in the flight uh, flight industry sandbagging. So you can't sandbag on your flight. You need to be looking out the plane, uh, looking out uh, over the patients and seeing what's, uh, seeing what's going on out there. And I can't stress that enough. And if you create an environment uh, to your folks looking out for you, uh, that uh, uh, causes the plane to go down and, and some people crash. So, so I, I have these four things that I, I generally look for uh, that are the uh, kind of the categorical risks uh, that we face uh, in emergency medicine. We've got medical negligence and liability and some EMTALA issues. We've got medical board and national practitioner data bank uh, liability issues. We've got employer issues, peer review liability issues, and then lastly, uh, personal liability. So I'd like to kind of break each one of those four down and, and offer some, some cases that are representative of each of those uh, risks that we, uh, that we face. So this, this first case uh, in the medical negligence liability case is a, uh, is a case that I consulted on um, it was uh, a case called Jackson v. Carnival, uh, Carnival Cruise. So this uh, patient, and this is a closed case, uh, of course, so I'm able to talk about it. So this, uh, this case uh, was about this uh, woman and her daughter. They went on a uh, Carnival Cruise, and this woman had a, she was 65, had a history of COPD and bipolar disorder, and she did continue to smoke. And about one in the morning, she uh, started having some trouble breathing and was using her inhaler, continued to use her albuterol inhaler, and it just got so bad that they uh, called the ship 911. So they came and got her, brought her to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, med room uh, in the, on the ship, and they started giving her nebulizers. They found out she had a history of COPD, giving her nebulizers. They tried to lie her down at one point, but were unable to... Uh, uh, lie her down because she got so dyspneic. Uh, but they kept on with the albuterol, albuterol, it gave her steroids, 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 but she wasn't getting better. And about an hour into this, after she was just heading uh, downhill, they started doing, they did some blood work, did a, an EKG. And um, then this, uh, then she, uh, then she crashed. Uh, she uh, had a cardiac arrest. They intubated her uh, thereafter, and and she ultimately uh, died on, on on board. So, when I reviewed the case, uh, I looked at 
uh, looked at the EKG, looked at the labs uh, that were uh, were drawn, and this lady clearly had tombstones uh, on her on her EKG. It was a clear STEMI that was unrecognized up front, and uh, the doctor didn't recognize that the uh, this lady had pulmonary edema, and it wasn't COPD uh, at all. So she had a just a typical MI. But the uh, doctor heard that she had a history of COPD and ran with it. And uh, you all have talked about some uh, biases uh, in your uh, previous publications. And uh, so this is a, a great, uh, great example of a anchoring bias uh, gone wrong. And I'll let y'all, uh, if y'all have any questions, uh, comments. That is, that is a tough case because you can see uh, – <laughs> going down the wrong path real, real easily. I mean, this anchoring bias is, gets us into trouble all the time, that's for sure. And here was a great case where, in fact, um, the, the the diagnosis was clear, clearly wrong. I don't frankly you know, uh, you know how much was going to turn this around in terms of the outcome, but uh, it was our doctor on the ship um, unable to make this diagnosis in terms of the interpretation of the EKG? The, usually the computer will spit out the answer to you these days. So what happened there? Were the, was there not a diagnosis by the computer of acute myocardial infarction? That's, that's a good question. Well, first of all, the, the EKG was done about an hour after the initial presentation, and the EKG machine that they have doesn't does not provide a computer interpretation. And on this particular EKG, there was no documentation on it. Usually, when I get an EKG, I'll I'll sign it and uh, time it, so I, I know what time I've been there. And sometimes I'll put like no STEMI, uh, so it's pretty clear what I'm looking for. And that's usually the uh, justification for them handing you an EKG during your shift. You're just looking for a STEMI. Every once in a while, you'll see an unusual arrhythmia. But that's the, the primary issue. We want to get that 10-minute uh, that window in uh, that we usually try to make. I think that uh, that in emergency medicine, Pat Crossgary uh, is, the, is the anchoring bias guru who uh, every time I've seen him at any meeting, at any event where we've spoken together, he says, the biggest problem you have as a doc is you know too much stuff and you've seen too much stuff. And so you immediately jump to the answer, which maybe if it doesn't meet all the criteria, meets six of the 10 criteria or that sort of thing without stopping to think, God, is there something obvious going on in front of me? And all of us have been there. We've all prejudged somebody. We've all walked in and said, oh, it's another this or another that, or oh my God, she's crazy, yada, yada, all the usual sorts of things. And Cross Carry is exactly right. If you can hold back from making a decision, the decision, the diagnosis, uh, until you've thought about it a little bit, you're going to be better off as a doctor. And I, and I think he's right. Yeah, I, I, you know, they say that uh, justice is blind, and uh, they have that little woman holding the scales of uh, justice and having the blindfold on. You know, perhaps we ought to uh, do something similar in medicine, put a blindfold on, and just 
listen to what we hear and create that differential in our head and uh, push forward from there instead of just jumping to, you know, what, uh, what the patient has had in the past, uh, absolutely uh, uh, is certain of what she's going to have in the future. And what were, the the what were the credentials of the uh, shipboard doctor? Uh, another excellent question, sir. Uh, so this, uh, this gentleman uh, was from uh, Croatia, uh, got his medical license down in the Caribbean. Absolutely nothing uh, wrong with that. Uh, but did a an internship at a questionable facility and nothing beyond that, and had worked as a chelator and uh, some other say no more <laughs> <laughs> odd jobs. Um, and um, you know it, it was uh, it, you know this was a, an easy case uh, to be a plaintiff's expert for. The uh, their uh, their defense expert had actually hired this gentleman. So imagine the conflicts uh, of interest there that their expert witness hired this doctor that made some fairly egregious uh, medical maneuvers. You know, you're describing a clown show here. <laughs> they usually don't make that kind of mistake. I yes. mean, everybody knows who knows everybody. <laughs> Uh, but even, let's say, Amal Matu had been standing there, uh, the outcome in this case might not be any different. You understand that, that, that MIs are MIs in the middle of the ocean. If you think you're going to take her to the cath lab, think again. It's not going to happen. That would be, uh, that would be a major <laughs> helicopter liftoff to someplace like Miami, that has these kinds of facilities. So even though we may not like certain of the decisions made, let's just all be honest here that uh, if we'd been sitting there, she could be just as dead as she is now. Another, another great observation, uh, Dr. Henry, <laughs> this, this person was traveling up the Mississippi River at the time of her incident. Oh, my. If, you know, I think it was five to 15 miles from my last duty station in New Orleans, okay? The biggest Coast Guard base in the world was a few minutes away. And, and New Orleans uh, has certainly a, a plethora of uh, uh, cath, uh, cath lab-capable hospitals. And on the ship... Uh, by the ASEP cruise ship uh, medicine standards, they have to have uh, they have to have lytics on board, and they did. So they had lytics on board, mm -hmm. and uh, and the availability. So you you you, you know give them their uh, TNKs or TPA or Redivase or uh, whatever uh, your lytic of choice is, and uh, you, uh, you you call for transport either by the Coast Guard. Or uh, if you call the Coast Guard, uh, they will say, hey, this is something that we can handle. Or they can, they can uh, triage it to one of the local, uh, uh, the, the local private, private firms, and they'll come and pick you, pick you up off the boat very quickly. 
but the the issue is she had no chance. She lost an, uh, a chance to uh, to do well, and I, I think she had a, a pretty good chance given her proximity. Had she been out in the Caribbean or you know someplace else, well, then I, I may have been a, a little bit more lenient. Um, but uh, this was uh, man, she she just had all the right uh, things in place, and the autopsy uh, definitely showed that she uh, she had an MI. And what was the dollar settlement? Uh, um, it was it was confidential. Actually, it was due to go to uh, uh, to trial next uh, uh, last month. Excuse me, and uh, they settled before uh, before trial, which which was smart, uh, which was smart. And I'm sure it was in the seven to eight figure uh, range. Uh, this was just not going to be good, and, and certainly bad publicity uh, for uh, you know big company uh, like Carnival. Well, there's some uh, as if Carnival needed more bad publicity. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are some take homes uh, here that would be uh, fairly generally applicable. Basically, I mean, there are people who work in uh, areas. We see them all all the time now that people go to these PA and and NP courses that we're doing, who are in the hinterlands uh, in the, in Alaska and places where transportation is really very limited. Uh, in, in terms of maybe it's a bad winter and you and the, and helicopters not going to be able to land, maybe it suggests that um, that some core uh, training. I mean, whether this physician had ATLS, a, ACLS, those things would be certainly basic kind of thing to expect. And obviously, an EKG machine that doesn't spit out the answers got to be from the fifties for crying out loud, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry machine does it now, so it's kind of like more they shortchange themselves there. Although I must admit, if you're in the center of the Mississippi River, it doesn't seem like you are in the middle of the Caribbean, and uh, and that that basically maybe mitigates uh, somewhat your necessity to have a board-certified emergency physician on board. Obviously, that's not going to happen in all cases, but. <laughs> it, it's a shame that this uh, occurred uh, when the medical isolation of this person was really fairly um, small. Yes, and, and, and unfortunately for them, uh, I uh, I looked on the ASEP website, and on the ASEP website, if you go to the uh, the uh, cruise ship section, it tells for Carnival all the requirements that one must have to apply for a job emergency medicine residency or uh, a residency training or board eligible, critical care uh, eligibility or training, and uh, family practice or internal medicine with up to three years of emergency room training. So they know what comes on those ships. This doc didn't really uh, have, have those credentials, which I, which I was uh, glad to point out to them uh, in in my uh, in my report, false advertising is what you're talking about here. Is that right, Doctor? The misrepresented. I'm not. I'm not I, and, and again, truth is a good defense to uh, defamation, and so I, I mean no uh, defamatory statements towards uh, Carnival. It was just this case, and uh, it just fell short. It fell uh, very short. And so it was uh, scary for me. You know, I did a lot of time in the Navy and not that I really want to go on a ship again, but I, I definitely don't want to go on a, on a ship again and uh, not to, uh, 
and not to mention all the uh, norovirus issues. Uh, that's a, another. <laughs> well, you know, there is a, an implied agreement with your clients or customers when you're going aboard. When you say that there's a doctor on board, the implication is that doctor is uh, got the training and skill to deal with uh, emergencies. And uh, it sounds like uh, the ship really let down its uh, customers. Yeah, I mean, think think of the people who cruise. Think yeah, of you know the exactly. clientele cruise. Right. Yeah, and, and so you need to be prepared for those people. You know, so, well, right. it, it, I mean, they're they're elderly. They're yeah. like Rick and I. <laughs> what they really need to be prepared to do is burial at sea, and and and, and, I, and I think we uh, we we miss that point sometimes. I've been on uh, been involved seeing a lot of people who, no way in hell. Uh, were they going to be saved on board some of these situations? And the bottom line here is that's a chance they take too when they go to sea. Um, if if you're absolutely afraid of dying of an MI at this moment, you know I'd go sit in the uh, in the part in the parking lot or the waiting room of the local hospital because on a ship it isn't necessarily going to be what you want it to be. Um. So, you know, for, for, you know, working on a ship, just like working in a remote location. And so we do have lots of folks that are working in these remote locations. And so you need to be prepared to address serious situations. I mean, raise your hand. How many people have given TPA to somebody for a, a, an MI? I mean, when I went to residency, none of my professors had ever done it. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they all, they all had, uh, they all were, uh, around in the, in the uh, age of, uh, you know, cath labs, because we were working at this huge, huge facility, but working in the backwoods of Mississippi, moonlighting, I mean, it was every single shift that I was TPAing somebody. So you need to be prepared for that. You need to make sure your ERs have TPA in case you can't transport somebody because of weather, helicopters down. Uh, you can think of all sorts of contingencies. Uh, you need to be a MacGyver. Uh, out there and have uh, a couple ways to do the same thing. Can we, uh, while we're talking about this subject, uh, transition over to a, a case you've got here about patient Sue's hospital for reviving her, it despite the fact she had a DNR order. Is that true? <laughs> what, this? So you got to sue for something. Are you going to sue for wrongful life? Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so that that's a uh, an interesting case. So, this uh, lady Jamie Sams. This is a, a Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, case. So she uh, she presented herself uh, to the hospital for uh, one reason or another. Uh, she had a, a DNR notification in her chart, and she was even wearing this purple bracelet. Uh, that was given to her by the hospital that said DNR, and it identified her as a, uh, a DNR candidate. So she was given uh, Dilaudid sometime during her, her visit, uh, which she was allergic to, and she went into cardiac arrest, and this is just an awful situation to be in. So you give something that somebody's allergic to, but then they're DNR, so do you try and revive them from your mistake, or do you let them die from your mistake. And anyway, they elected to uh, try and resuscitate this, uh, this woman. And uh, 
she uh, she did uh, did come back, and she's in chronic severe pain, has uh, a constant disability and limitations, and has uh, uh, sued for unspecified uh, damages. So uh, this is. Uh, so this is one of those informed consent, uh, you know, f- following what uh, people uh, want to do uh, with their with their DNRs. Um, the, 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 you can't take the informed consent argument like you would for an elective surgery to the emergent situation because you don't know everything. You don't even know whether their current. Uh, do not resuscitate form is is actually valid at that moment in time. We've had those kinds of questions when the ambulance came in and they they pulled it off the refrigerator at home with the patient. It says do not resuscitate, except uh, that was two years old, and the patient was getting better from their uh, myocarditis. Um, is it? Uh, I think it's a tough situation for healthcare personnel. You know, you can always settle these things when the dust is kind of drizzled down here a little bit. But uh, I hate—I would hate to send out the the idea here that if you revive somebody, uh, you you have a chance of getting sued for the revival. Now, I understand getting sued if you did more damage. But uh, wrongful life is tough to sue for, I think. Yeah, the the unfortunate thing for the uh, for the staff in this case is that that uh, the hospital had just given her this purple bracelet uh, for uh, a, a DNR uh, that she that she was wearing. But by the same token, they had done something that had uh, expedited her uh, her departure, and uh, so it, it is it is very tough. I, I think. In general, I, I would rather I would rather face the music for doing too much for a patient than than not not doing enough uh, under certainly under these circumstances. Well, this is also a rather unexpected uh, event. It wasn't the natural progression of her disease that for or that would have made her a DNR. This was a a um, allergic reaction of sorts that wasn't anticipated and which people could reasonably say, I think we can try to reverse this with the uh, standard medicines. And so I think that you're right. I would have done the same thing kind of thing. Uh, you're not just going to stay stand back and say nothing's going to happen. You've got another case here. I think we may have covered this case, but I think it's worth talking about again, about an obese obese patient who needed an MRI but couldn't fit into the local machine and who yes. just said, okay, well, um, <laughs> follow up your family with your family doctor. Yeah, so that uh, that's the uh, the case of the MRI won't fly for the big guy uh, from uh, Portland, Oregon. And so this, uh, this gentleman uh, presents to the emergency department complaining of mid to lower back pain, fever, chills, elevated pulse, and uh, elevated blood pressure levels. Uh, and this is sounding like another zebra. Well, but... wait a second. <laughs> this described me six weeks ago, Rick. <laughs> God, I need to think that they wouldn't have done the study. <laughs> well, you know, they, they didn't send you home, fortunately. <laughs> um, um, but uh, 
uh, anyway, so this, so the, the physician, it sounded like he was, he or she was on the right track and ordered an MRI, but uh, realized that this uh, gentleman wouldn't fit into the scanner. So instead of doing something else, they sent the guy home and just, I guess, gave up. This is where you got your hand on your, on your forehead. So six days later, the patient comes back, uh, brought to the hospital by ambulance, and the same uh, ED doctor is, uh, is there. So now the same physician who had seen the patient suspects an infection. Hmm. And then he has a, uh, a neurologist come in and confirm that the patient uh, was unable to move their legs. Like they needed the neurologist to confirm that. <laughs> so I need a second opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Here. This, uh, so uh, it, it, at this time, it sounded like uh, it, it was fortunate the neurologist was there because uh, the neurologist had suggested, you know what, maybe we ought to uh, go to another facility that has an MRI machine that is uh, capable of imaging uh, this, uh, this gentleman. And lo and behold, he had this unusual diagnosis of a thoracic epidural abscess and was taken to surgery. Unfortunately, remained a paraplegic and um, said, I'd like a uh, pay me a seven with six zeros behind it. So uh, this has got some medical malpractice issues and uh, EMTALA issues uh, in it as well. I know y'all have covered uh, EMTALA issues a, a lot, but uh, you never know when you're going to get uh, in trouble with the, uh, with the patient uh, in a civil uh, lawsuit, uh, or with the feds, uh, with an Mtala uh, violation. You so know, you we, we have kind of beaten this spinal epidural abscess thing to death. But I can tell you that, to my knowledge, all of the major ER contracting groups are making it very, very clear to their clinicians that this is uh, a, a condition that they need to be aware of. It is becoming more frequent. The uh, outcomes are essentially always bad. Nobody gets gets recovers what they they lost, kind of thing. And um, one of the things that you mentioned, I think, that is important is that this was a thoracic uh, spinal epidural abscess, and that it is unusual to have thoracic back pain. Back pain is usually in the lumbar area, there the area where there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of opportunity <clears throat> for you know, ligaments and, and that thing to be causing back pain. And the other issue is is that you may have been able to get a clue on this, maybe not, by pressing on the spinous processes. Normally, pressing on the spinous processes will cause no pain, even if you have pretty extensive musculoskeletal pain because the spinous processes are just pieces of bone, for crying out loud. But um, it's been said that if you press on the spinal processes and you cause pain by doing that, that that should be, make you think for sure uh, of this diagnosis. So pain, um, fever, uh, thoracic back pain, um, nasty, nasty. So it's unfortunate because all of these people, they don't die. They just have these huge amounts of morbidity that, and mor uh, that has to be dealt with for the rest of their unfortunate lives. Yeah, by the way, the um, number of jumbo machines is increasing in the country. 
But we've been through a phase, and certainly I was practicing in that phase, when there wasn't one. And what we did was we sent them to the vet school at Michigan State uh, because they do cows, uh, they do horses, uh, they can do people. And and, uh, actually, uh, there are other things we can do. When, When you're up and you think you need the study, then I'd ask some other questions. Uh, yeah, does another hospital have a jumbo machine that we can get the correct study with? Because it's it's wrong if you honestly believed on the first visit that they were compressing their spinal cord and not investigate in some way, shape, or form. And and whether we realize it or not, in the old days, and Rick and I remember the old days, we used to actually do myelograms, um, with not in a machine, but put a dye that ran up and down the back and they shot x-rays and the, and the uh, neurologists and neurosurgeons would say, there it is, there's the spot. And it didn't matter how big the patient was. The myelogram in that case could actually do it. You know, sometimes consultation with a radiologist is not a bad idea. Because because they don't have the machine you need doesn't mean they can't give you the answer that you want. And uh, we need to remember radiologists are for more than just, uh, you know, sending bills and buying condos in Florida. Come on, come on, come on. They they can do important things if you ask them. Why don't we move on to some of the... uh medical board uh, liability issues that you have, uh, National Practitioner Database uh, issues. There are a couple of cases there. I, I, I just want to add one, one, one last thing. A lot of people out there who are working in remote areas do not have MRIs. And so if you need to contemplate transferring somebody to get an MRI, start the antibiotics, start the antibiotics. And this is not an uncommon disease anymore. We have everybody getting transplants and all of these uh, medications like Humira and things like that, HIV, that suppress the immune system. And so this is a much more common disease than it was before this new uh, era of medicines. Um, so medical board, um, medical board issues. So that's our, our, our second area uh, where we're exposed uh, to risk. So I've... Uh, got this case of a patient that uh, came into the emergency department. Uh, she was a, a former nurse, and uh, she had had some uh, chronic ongoing back pain. The uh, ER doctor said, okay, well, I'm going to give you some pain medicine, gave her a couple milligrams of Dilaudid, and she said that her pain is now a 9 uh, out of 10 and gave her two more milligrams of Dilaudid. Uh, then uh, she said, well, I need you know, a refill of my medicine. He refused to give her a refill of the medicine and then uh, and, and released her, and there was a contentious uh, exchange uh, during the discharge process. And she apparently uh, got this last dose of two milligrams of Dilaudid, which is a pretty good dose, and later that evening, had a respiratory arrest and was sent to the uh, another local emergency department and uh, was resuscitated, had some aspiration pneumonia, ultimately recovered, um, but uh, 
uh, filed a complaint with uh, filed a complaint with the the board, and so here herein lies. Uh, in Texas, at least, fortunately, we have a, a little better uh, malpractice climate with uh, tort reforms that uh, happened in 2003, and cases that don't necessarily meet the threshold for an attorney to take. It's not going to bring in enough, or it's going to cause too much time, or there may be an issue with the uh, client, uh, those kind of things. Uh, they, uh, We've heard that they've encouraged them to uh, seek some restitution with the board, uh, with the medical board. So um, this uh, uh, this doc got a, a a love letter from from the board and had to answer to this and and these board letters uh, need to be turned around very very quickly and should not uh, generally be written just by yourself. You should uh, seek the counsel of uh, somebody experienced in writing and who's not going to be quite so passionate when they uh, when they write. Uh, back to the board, not be so defensive. What you may know is uh, we have a contributor to this program who is in Texas, does only malpractice in Texas, uh, Calvert. Yes. And, uh, and, and he has said straight out, you know, he does a lot of this. If you're answering your own letters like this, you're an idiot. I mean, these need to be looked at by an attorney who knows what the words mean when it gets in the hands of other attorneys. So I guess my advice is if you've been notified, you've got to get a hold of your carrier and your hospital and get the right people to do this because an, an angry physician is not the person you want writing this kind of letter. Yeah, Mark Calvert is a super, super uh, attorney, super nice, uh, super nice man. Very, very supportive of emergency medicine. So if there's any uh, cases that you may have in Texas, I would highly recommend his services. And even if you're in another uh, jurisdiction, another state, uh, you know, just like us, we know lots of folks all around the country. He can perhaps make a, a, a good recommendation for you. And so I, I helped uh, with, you know, just kind of investigate this, uh, this particular case and uh, doing some digging it helped a lot in this case. A couple things that we did that you might want to consider doing. Uh, get the video footage in your uh, emergency department. Most ERs have, uh, have footage that you can get. You can get a copy of it, and that will be supportive, and you can send that along with your board report. Uh, this particular nurse, uh, I did some research on her, and she was currently on suspension uh, for diverting drugs from the VA. Mm -hmm. uh, which was additionally supportive uh, for this doc's case. And, and, then, and then lastly, all of us, uh, I believe every state now has access to this prescription monitoring program. And so look people up on this PMP database and use that. Uh, patients, patients yelling at me, asking for prescription medicines. They said their pain's 10 out of 10. Look it up. Document what's on that report. And I'll routinely say, patient just refilled 60 Norco 10s five days ago. I'm uncomfortable refilling this uh, for her safety. I've conveyed this information uh, to the patient. And when the board sees that you've looked and they see that uh, uh, corroboration and support for your case, these things just get dismissed. 
at the first level, you don't want anything to go beyond this first level. It's so critical that things get uh, uh, disposed of at this uh, initial evaluation. So that's where a, a really good attorney can uh, give you some hand, uh, give you a hand at, at crafting, crafting a letter uh, back to the board. So I think that's it on this one. There's a this uh, this next case is a, uh, a medical board NPD. This is NPD uh, liability in the National Practitioner Data Bank. So this doc uh, sees a uh, a patient following an auto accident. She was intoxicated, still walking around, but was uh, the the doc didn't know <laughs> had a. C-spine and pelvic fracture. The patient was discharged and uh, was seen at another hospital. The other hospital noted uh, the the fractures. It was reported to the original hospital. The original hospital uh, says uh, says to the doctor, "Hey, we're investigating you for this this miss." The doctor resigns their privileges, and um, and and therein you have the first, uh, issue, uh, there. So in 2018, last year, the, uh, national practitioner, uh, data bank, uh, uh, guidelines were updated and added some clarifications to the uh, prior rules, uh, seen in, in prior years. So I'm just going to kind of go, go through some of these, uh, things which are, are quite relevant for every, everything uh, we do. This was a misstep on this doctor's uh, on this doctor's case, and should have consulted somebody before they made these decisions. It seemed, uh, I guess, in theory, you're like, forget it. I'm not going to expose myself to this. Um, seems like the right thing to do, but uh, it exposes you to even uh, more problems. So, the uh, the most relevant uh, clarifications in the 2018 updates are you have. If you have an agreement to not exercise privileges or surrender your pr privileges. If you restrict your clinical privileges, that mandates reporting to the data bank. If you take a leave of absence while under clinical investigation, that gets reported. If you resign while under a quality review plan for clinical competence or quality review uh, that lasts beyond 30 days in duration, that needs to be reported as well. Any state licensing or governing board that uh, takes an adverse action against one of its licensees, licensees mandates reporting. Any adverse state licensing or board action that curtails a licensee's practice of medicine due to mental illness, alcohol, or drug abuse also mandates reporting. If you surrender a license but not under investigation for a mental illness or physical illness or sen uh, simply entering into a substance abuse program, that is not, not reportable. And if you, uh, if, uh, the, if there's a malpractice claim from a, a physician's corporate account, it is reportable or from your malpractice carrier, any payment. So there used to be a threshold payment in years past, but now any payment that's made on your behalf is, is reportable. However, the caveat to that is if you make the payment out of your own private funds, that's not reportable. So if there's perhaps a small, small settlement, 5,000, 500, whatever you're, you know, whatever you quantify as being small, 
sometimes to you know so you don't have to uh, report that uh, issue you can just go ahead and bite the bullet and, and pay it let me ask a question is that binding i mean for example let's say you've given mrs smith a check for five thousand dollars now i'm not advising anybody do that i mean that's why we have uh lawyers and that's why we have malpractice insurance but it would seem to me that if an if an action came back you would have to have the release on that written so carefully that somebody couldn't come back because now are you providing evidence of your own guilt uh I think we one would have to be very careful about this. And again, the wording in law is the important thing. It's not what actually happened. It's what the words look like. And I, this would frighten the living daylights out of me. I don't know, Rick. What do you think? No, I, I, I agree. But I think this option of uh, paying on your own in small dollar cases, you may decide that it's the better part of valor to pay five, ten thousand, whatever it is going to be a deductible business expense, I would think. And so if you're in the fifty percent bracket, ten thousand becomes five thousand. And if you don't want your name in the National Practitioner Data Bank, although I'm not quite sure how how nasty that that is. I guess it's if you want to apply for privileges at some other hospital, that's going to be a a bit of a hassle, that's for sure. So I think that that's kind of interesting, the idea that you can end run that reporting by paying out of your own pocket. Yep. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, maybe maybe we could get um, um, Mike, is Michael Cohen still available to, you know, the, uh, <laughs> to, to help make uh, surreptitious payments and, and yeah, kind of laund- launder those payments, et cetera, like that, you know? I don't know if Skype works through bars. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you have a couple more cases here on the yeah. medical liability situation here, uh, yeah. uh, national practitioner, oh, medical board liability. Yeah. So, um, oh, and, and just, uh, one, one other thing is that a professional society like ASEP can report somebody to the national practitioner data bank if they're, uh, let me get the, the wording on this, right. So, they must report professional review actions based on reasons related to professional competence or professional conduct that adversely affects or may adversely affect the membership of a physician. The professional competence or professional conduct must nonetheless adversely affect or potentially adversely affect the health or welfare of a patient. So if the patient's welfare is uh, in jeopardy, or I've analogized this uh, in recent past, if perhaps a, an ASEP member is testifying in court, and they say, well, this is the standard of care. This is what I do. Of, of course, I give uh, TPA to uh, every hemorrhagic stroke. It's a standard of care. That's what you should be doing. If there's something that's, uh, you know, just really out there and egregious and may adversely affect another patient that this person is seeing, perhaps it it might not uh, uh, be such a bad thing for at least ASEP to go after a a couple people because there are some people out there that you all know about um, who have used uh, ASEP 
titles to further their uh, medical legal careers uh, unscrupulously. And uh, so we need to uh, look out for those people and uh, rein them in. Well, it sounds like this is not an option that is required that these, um, uh, that the ASAP, how can the federal government uh, mandate that a professional society turn in one of its people who they have chastised for uh, um, improper behavior that relates to uh, medical care? Um, you know, most of this is about egregious testimony. And so uh, that doesn't mean necessarily that that person who's testifying would, in fact, do that egregious uh, t- uh, uh, that medical care. So it's not necessarily, you know, um, uh, under those cases, it doesn't sound like it would be reportable. Sure. And, you know, if it's uh, really under the auspices of a uh, censure or a reprimand from uh, ASEP or they're admonishing the, uh, the actions of, of that provider, then you're right. Uh, that uh, would not uh, be a reportable event. But if there's something that uh, um, is involved in their uh, professional conduct or their professional uh, competence, but it says may affect uh, this health or welfare of a patient. I don't know. It may be a little bit of a stretch, uh, but uh, uh, nevertheless, you can you can threaten and maybe rein some people in. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to bring my, uh, Jer- my best Jerry Hoffman out here, but until I see some data on this, until I see some actions at various boards, there's 24 professional boards. I want to see some case law where the where where they they've tried to implement this and something's happened i mean they can change any reg they want or suggest anything in the reg but until we've actually seen a case work its way through you would agree that everything is speculation it may be in this case relatively intelligent speculation but it's speculation till we have case law no it's got going to happen these organizations are very very risk averse and they don't want to uh, put themselves out there in terms of jeopardizing um you know nice big fat uh lawsuits against them for sure yeah sure. exactly and and that uh, and that likely would happen. However, just to you know, if you put the 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 uh, the hanging gallows uh, out there, uh, perhaps that was the deterrent uh, in the old days, and uh, this may be the deterrent to just float out there. You don't necessarily have to use it, but uh, using just the deterrent effect uh, might uh, perhaps uh, be of some benefit. So um, let's uh, let's let's move on uh, here. Uh, we've got some, uh, and uh, how about this uh, last uh, this employer peer review liability? So this uh, this case, this Reginelli, uh, the uh, Boggs case, uh, was a, a a case out of uh, Pennsylvania, and this was uh, a, a case that prompted my uh, writing of this peer review paranoia and, and ASAP now last year. And I thought it was very, very interesting. So you have this, uh, this EM, uh, EM doc who, uh, sees this patient for epigastric pain and sends them home. And lo and behold, they come back a a few days later and it's a, a missed MI. And 
during the discovery of the uh, medical malpractice case uh, that uh, ensued, the plaintiff's attorney discovered that the medical director uh, kept this uh, performance file on uh, many docs, uh, including the name defendant. And now they want access to this uh, peer review material. So every state has their own peer review statutes or, or, or laws that uh, uh, that they uh, will will enforce on folks. But this uh, Pennsylvania statute enumerates specific entities that are peer review protected. And the uh, appellate court, the appeals court, affirmed the lower court's interpretation that the ER group did not qualify as a licensed healthcare provider under the statute, uh, which was unfortunate. So they had to uh, argue and argue that, uh, that the ER group was doing reviews for the hospital. Nevertheless, this uh, did not succeed. And uh, the court offered, uh, offered this. They said, uh, peer review done under the auspices of the hospital's peer review committee uh, would have qualified or a formal written affiliation with the ER group to perform the peer reviews. So the ER group, they were an independent contractor group. They were their own group. The hospital brought them on. They were not employees of the hospital and so did not qualify uh, for this peer review protection. Uh, this uh, is, is a little unusual, but there are states that have very, very poor, poor peer review uh, protections. There are, two, there are two different things we ask about, and that is discoverability and admissibility. Those are quite different. And because a plaintiff can find out something exists doesn't mean it gets to go in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can tell you is, uh, first of all, have decent state laws. But the other thing is, why are you keeping this secret folder What's it supposed to do if it doesn't have to be submitted to the hospital's quality assurance committee for review? Um, I I think there are two sets of of idiocy here. The first one is thinking that they're not going to look for this kind of stuff and not thinking that a, a court and a jury is going to think, well, if they kept it, there must be some validity to this. It hasn't gone through any process. It hasn't gone through anything. I have no idea why someone would keep a book like this. Uh, that's That was like our old frequent flyer books. Rick will remember the frequent flyer books where we had a book saying so-and-so was in again today. So-and-so was in again today. And I saw years ago, I saw cases where they got – plaintiff was able to get to that information. Isn't it true that you kept records of every time our patient came in because you were so angry about them abusing the system, doctor? Um, whenever you want to keep something like this hidden, I'm not, a, I'm not a big guy in hidden files because I think somehow they get to them and you can't hide files anymore. Bill Gates couldn't hide some of his emails when the feds came. If Bill Gates can't find somebody to hide stuff, what makes you think you can do it? You can't. Although I don't think that this is all that common in that, you know, 
uh, groups have group meetings once a month or something like that. Part of that meeting may have to do with some kind of review of cases, and uh, they're they're not in any way. Um, uh, the hospital is not in any way uh, uh, involved with those cases. And so I think that there's a lot of groups probably who have minutes of their group meetings that uh, they think that's a good idea we have to have group meetings and discuss cases and to talk about other things that are related to the performance of the group. And uh, so I think that this is an easy trap to get into. Uh, very much so, and so I don't think that this is particularly unique. We we did review this case uh, once before, yes. and I do think it's kind of like a reminder that uh, you ought not be doing uh, peer review at your monthly group meetings. I mean, you can talk about the uh, the billables and the attendance and the uh, you um, you know those kinds of things and how much vacation you're going to get. But maybe you ought not be talking about uh, this case of such and such and such and such with Dr. So-and-so. What we did was uh, just had the, the group meeting, wanted to talk about anything we wanted. When we came to the quality assurance part of the meeting, we re- reassembled uh, and said, this is part of the hospital's quality assurance program, which is required it was put on separate forms. It was typed up separately and sent in so that it was always covered with the exact same wording of the Michigan statute for quality assurance. Uh, the last thing I wanted was to have a fight like this with some attorney who wanted to get at our department's monthly meetings. Uh, so we kept the the quality assurance and the uh, regular department meetings very separate. Let me ask you this. What did you all do as medical directors when you had to counsel one of your physicians and make documentation of that counseling, perhaps in support of later termination? Yeah, that would that would go into the. Uh, physician's uh, file, which again, at least in the state of Michigan, if it's a quality assurance activity uh, and you're doing it on behalf of the quality assurance program would be protected. Um, now, that doesn't mean you can't use it if, if a termination isn't necessary, but for plaintiff to use it as, as an independent standing document in a legal case we never had that happen while I was chief of the department. Wasn't also part of this the uh, fact that there would be some kind of document um, indicating that you have a relationship between the hospital and uh, your group uh, to do this uh, peer review th- through a protected mechanism? That was required under the contract. We would perform. Uh, the duties of quality assurance for the emergency department as part of the hospital's larger quality assurance program, but it was a duty assigned to the contract group, which was uh, running the department at that time. You know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because in that case, you are the uh, it's the it's the uh, fox is watching the chicken coop in in a certain sense because. Oftentimes, um, these kinds of things go before a broader uh, 
panel of physicians, not just necessarily the specialists in your group. Right. And um, and uh, as an example, when there's a general surgeon who gets into some uh, trouble and he is just an independent uh, practitioner, not in a group or anything like that, that's going to come up before the general surgery committee there. It's not in private kind of thing, particularly, in ter- but there are peers out there who are going to be uh, looking at this matter. Um, so it, 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 there is a some in, intrinsic conflicts of interest in terms of this, con- um, this assessment of quality and those kinds of things in that the uh, physician group is not particularly interested in turning itself in to having a, a bad apple in there if they can avoid it. Um, <clears throat> Rick, besides being a uh, very accomplished person, Kenny has done something this month that no one has ever done before on Risk Management Monthly. He brought his own wines of the month. Uh, And I'm trying to think over the last 13 years, have we ever had anybody as a visitor bring wines of the month to the table? I don't think we have. No, and actually, uh, given the fact that you were a little under the weather for the last several months, we're we're, – uh, certainly behind, and I, I, I don't know if you're still on the wagon for medical uh, medical uh, purposes. We we have a somebody coming in from the bullpen to uh, relieve you of your your chores. Well, this is this is great. I mean, I'm happy to get a uh, a new uh, a new person bringing in some wines of the month. By the way, a few months ago we did a trip down memory lane and talked about Matus which is a, uh, a wine from our era as children in college. I went and bought it, drank it again. A bunch of our listeners did the same thing, and I got notes and phone calls saying, yeah, it's not as good as we remember. <laughs> it is part of that, that fuzziness in our past that was better than, we, than they actually were. You know, the girl you took to prom wasn't that cute. And, and uh, in retrospect... Uh, that wine wasn't that good, but you brought us a rosé yes. uh, to keeping up in the 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 uh, concept of the Matus. What did you bring us today? So I, I brought a, a couple couple things. Uh, one is I'll uh, put it in front of the camera so you all can see it. So this uh, first one's a new wine that uh, came out. It's called Hampton Water, and if you look behind me on the uh, on, on the walls behind me, you see a, a bunch of guitars. You see I'm a, a guitar player. And so I uh, grew up in the era of Bon Jovi. And so John Bon Jovi and his son created this, uh, have this vineyard in the south of France and have produced this, uh, this rosé. And where I am down here in Houston, it is very, very hot and humid. And the cool rosés are wonderful uh, this time of year. And, uh, it's about 20 bucks. I looked for it at, uh, Costco. Uh, unfortunately I could not find it, but my other suggestion, uh, is, uh, is a, a Costco, uh, a Costco wine. And, uh, and I'll say, just mention it briefly. It's, uh, it's actually a Prosecco. Uh, it's a Lamarca Prosecco. It's a product of Italy and another sparkling uh, uh, wine Prosecco that you can enjoy 
uh, in the heat of, uh, of Houston. And I have that in, uh, in recognition of my wife because she is a beer drinker and she loves the bubbles of uh, Bud Light and that's her go-to drink. But when we're out on business and doing things like that, she can't uh, can't necessarily carry a beer mug. So the Prosecco is her her go-to drink. It's nice. It's cold. Got a little hint of uh, sweetness. Twelve bucks at uh, Costco. It's tough to tough to beat that. And yeah. What is- no, there's no question about that. And it's always good to remember that in Texas. Usually when you're asking for wine, you know, with a Texas accent, usually have you have both kinds, right? Wed, red and white. And, and, and we should we should always remember that Texas is moving on here. So now they've got a rosé as well. Oh, my God. The, the, the next thing they're going to start voting for uh, Democrats or something. Now, what, can, what can I tell you? Now, now that I'm taking notes here, now, now tell me the uh, brand of the Prosecco. Sure, it's Lamarca, L-A-M-A-R-C-A. It's got a blue, LaMarca. like a, a Tiffany blue label uh, on it. Okay. All right, listen, is there anything else we want to do before we uh, wrap up here? According to my watch, we have about, oh, maybe five minutes. Are there any points that you really want to hit home on? I know that there are more cases that you have for us under each of these categories. Not, not a problem. I just want to uh, get in a, a thank you. And I've, uh, I remember seeing Greg uh, speak when I was in the Navy in San Antonio. I was at a conference there in San Antonio. And if anybody has not gotten the opportunity to see him speak in public, it is just uh, a, a wonderful thing. And if you'll be <laughs> on the on the floor. Very knowledgeable and uh, just a, a, a pleasure, a pleasure to watch. And uh, I appreciate you all asking me to um, uh, to, to come on the show. I have a, just just a couple tight, tidy things, you know, th- personal uh, liability issues that uh, that can also get you in trouble in uh, enclosure. Uh, things that we do or say in or out of the emergency department, like political correctness, inappropriate comments to staff or patients. That will not be covered under your malpractice insurance. Uh, writing prescriptions for family members, uh, like uh, controlled substances, that is. Please don't do that. <laughs> spending, spending beyond your means and not saving. Having a nest egg is the best uh, uh, emotional feeling that you can have as you move on in your career. It makes work a lot more pleasurable knowing that you don't have to work as you get older, but you're working because you uh, you want to. Your uh, emotional um, outlook on uh, on life really shows up on your shifts. And other things, not working on your spousal relationships and not having a positive outlet for stress. I exercise every day and uh, try and do something uh, for my wife uh, every day. Just, you know, tell her you love her. Um, it, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And she's uh, been a very uh, influential person in my life. And love her much. Rick, I, I've got to repeat everything I said earlier. We got to take this guy out and shoot him because he's also a perfect husband too. We really don't need you kind of hanging around here. I'm going to go home, have a large chin and tonic, and uh, hope my wife never listens to this discussion. But uh, Kenny, we appreciate you uh, now being part of the family. 
uh, here at Risk Management Monthly, and uh, we may be calling you back to uh, sit and uh, comment on a few cases. That sounds great. I, I really appreciate it. Well, you know, the other thing is is that you have come onto the landscape uh, guns a-blazing. Uh, you have done a substantial amount of writing in the um, press that goes to uh, large numbers of emergency physicians. So I, th- I think this was just one article that you wrote back in 2018, but I think you've done uh, articles subsequent to that. And uh, I think that you are really getting into the... Uh, business of medicine and law together as a uh, as a new career for you as you involve your as you evolve your career over time so it's um it's nice to see you uh it's nice to see what you're doing i think you're doing really some some nice work and i really appreciate the opportunity for you to be with us uh i think that you probably have a lot more that you can offer down the road a piece and we're going to take you up on it so thanks so much for uh, being with us, Greg. Um, it's, I'm glad to see. I, I can see by the my monitor that you are not. You are getting rosier and rosier and pinker and pinker <laughs> at, at each month. So that's good. That's that's called telemedicine. Do I can, can I bill for that now? Yeah, yeah, you probably can. Thank you. Okay. Uh, but and 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 thanks to uh, all the people who've called in, sent in uh, messages and things like that. I am considerably better. And um, I look forward to continuing to work with Rick on this uh, wonderful project. So for all of us, uh, that's it for July. We'll get back to you in August. And thanks, Kenny. Signing off. Bye now.